If you're not in the book of John, let's get there. John chapter 7, we are actually going to finish 7, roll into chapter 8 this morning with a message I've entitled Grace and Truth Extended. One of the things we've got to see as we lead into this section, the Feast of Tabernacles is over. We've been looking at that all throughout chapter 7. The Jews who have traveled from out of town to come into town, into Jerusalem for the feast, are probably packing up and getting ready to go back home where they came from. But it's interesting because they don't rush out of town. And I think the reason they don't rush out of town is because of the buzz that Jesus Christ has created during this this feast season. They probably are staying around to get a little bit more time with him. So the crowds have not fully dissipated yet, still large crowds. And it actually sets the the scene for the very next day following the feast, which is what we're going to pick up in our Bibles this morning. We're going to cover an amazing passage. This is the woman caught in adultery. For many people, it's one of their favorite passages in all the Bible. And part of the reason for that is because I think in this passage, we get to behold the Lord Jesus in in some pretty incredible character qualities. Not only grace and mercy, but also truth. He's actually going to be the embodiment of what John uh, 1 says, that he he came with grace and truth. We're going to see it played out in this story, this, this perfect balance. How can you be balanced in grace and truth? Oftentimes, we, we gravitate toward one side and we neglect the other, or we gravitate toward the other side and we neglect the other. Jesus is going to be the perfect balance, just a beautiful picture we're going to see this morning. But before we get started, there's an elephant in the room. If, if, you, if you have your Bibles really quickly, many of you are going to have a footnote next to verse 53. The footnote is going to say a, a couple of things. And I only bring this up because I don't want to ignore it and act like I don't see it. You know, sometimes you, you see something in your Bible, you put your head in the sand and you just hope no one else sees it because we've got something to hide. We don't actually have anything to hide this morning. And so that's why I want to just bring this out into the light. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I want to get into the passage. But you're going to see a couple of notes there. Some might say this is not in the earliest manuscripts, 753 through 811. They'll say something like, this is not in the earliest manuscripts. Some actually make the bold claim that says, this is not in the best manuscripts. I don't actually like that claim, honestly. But it's going to say something to the effect. Some are going to say, this is not included in the NU. Okay, some of you have that. That's minority text. Uh, NU means that. And then some will have even some additional footnotes there. But one of the things I want to say at the outset is I believe this passage is genuine. I think the debate is where does it fit in the scripture? Where does it actually belong? Does it belong right here? Because one of the things that you'll see, some people as you study this will say that this passage actually belongs in the book of Luke. They'll say that the language, the vocabulary fits more of Luke's writings than it does John. I don't personally agree with that. Uh, just having looked at it myself. I can see why they make the argument. I don't personally agree with it. Some will say it belongs at the end of John's gospel. This, this was a story that uh, wasn't put in uh, in order, and then John just kind of included it toward the end, maybe before the last chapter. Uh, that's a possibility. And then some will say it belongs right where it is. Now, there's some reasons for the debate. And I want to say this, because I want to get to the passage this morning. I don't want to spend an entire sermon on textual criticism. I Personally, if, I, if I'm being honest, if I'm up here in my confessional, this is where I do all my confessing, I think. But if I'm being honest, I didn't even like textual criticism when I was in seminary. It was, it was boring. It was dry. I just was like, oh, you know, make me puke some, some days. I mean, it was just, it was so technical and so just 
And some of it was speculative. I was just like, I, I just, I just want to see Jesus. <laughs> like, I just want to enjoy Jesus. I want to get out of the, the technicalities of the minutia. I don't care how many angels fit on the pin of a needle. I don't, I don't give a rip about that. I want to know Jesus, right? So I'm trying to pass along that courtesy to you this morning by just covering it quickly, mention why there's debate, and then we want to get into the passage. If you want to talk more, if you're a true geek, and that's okay, I love geeks, I'm kind of one of them. If you're a nerd, I'm one of them. If you want to talk more about this in detail or it concerns you in some way, just, just call me, email me, let's get together. We'll spend some time going over it in more detail. I just want to give kind of a brief, quick overview why there's reasons for the debate. First thing, just a couple points. Most ancient Greek manuscripts before the 8th century don't contain this account. It's not found in the, not found in some of these ancient manuscripts. Now, before you get all concerned, there's not a lot of manuscripts in general before the 8th century. That's why they call these manuscripts the minority text. Minority, because there's not a lot of copies. These are the old copies. And it makes sense. When you make copies on papyri, it just doesn't stand the test of time. Paper disintegrates over time. So we, we lost a lot of those copies. When you look at these copies that we do have prior to the 8th century, they don't contain this account. The other thing that's notable on this argument is, is no early Greek church father, I think before the 12th century, even comments on this passage in their commentaries and writings. It's a pretty strong argument to say maybe it doesn't belong here in the book of John. Maybe it belongs in Luke or maybe it belongs somewhere else. But then... You've got 900 ancient manuscripts that do contain it, and they contain it right where we're studying it in the book of John in this context. And you're going to see that it actually fits the context of the Feast of Tabernacles very well. How do you catch a woman in adultery if she's in her home behind closed doors? Well, you have to kind of insert your way in there. But could you catch a woman committing adultery if she's out in a booth during the Feast of Booths? It's a little bit more open air. You know, it's like catching somebody in a tent. That makes a little bit more sense. At least it could fit the context a little bit. And so 900 ancient manuscripts do contain this story. So basically, uh, again, not to try to bore you or, or to try to overwhelm you, but the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, those, some of those newer translations, they largely base th- these decisions on the earlier manuscripts. And this is why, especially those versions, if you've got those versions with you this morning, they'll make a comment like it's not in the best manuscripts, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Because again, they're basing their, their inclusion or exclusion of it um, based on the earlier manuscripts not having the story. The manuscripts that underline the King James, the New King James, that's called the majority text, they've got 900 manuscripts that have the story right where we have it. Our church, although we're not I wouldn't say we take an official position, but I, here's our official position. Tell me if this sounds like a politician, which is not, not always a good thing. But, but I would say, I, at least I would describe myself as majority text the majority of the time. How about that? So not majority text all the time. I think there are, there are some strong arguments for the, some of the earlier manuscripts have, have different readings that are maybe better or more legitimate. Um, but the majority of the time were majority texts. That's why I preach, if you've ever wondered, that's why I preach from the New King James Version. It's not just because, I mean, it's not just some random reason. It's, it, we've thought through this a little bit. Carl preached from the New King James Version, I, I believe, for the same reasons. That's where we stand on all of this. One of the things now, as we kind of leave that realm of textual criticism, we actually get into the text this morning. One of the things we're going to see 
is the embodiment of this verse in Jesus Christ. When we get into this passage, you're going to be like, I mean, I hope, I hope you're just more amazed with Jesus Christ when we get done. Because the, the situation that they put him, the grinder that they put him in with the question in this scenario was almost an impossible situation to get out of unscathed. And he's going to do it. And he's going to do it with grace. And he's going to do it in such a way that you're like, wow, he, he's the perfect balance between grace and truth. I've never seen anyone like this before. That's what I want you to think at the end of the story. We'll see if we can get you there. But for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's move into the story. Verse 53, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. This is exactly what you would expect after the Feast of Tabernacles. They've been camped out for eight days. Now they're going back home to their house. It's like, hey, I get to sleep in my bed for the first time in a week because they've been camping out. And all of the Jews went to their own house. But Jesus didn't have a house in Jerusalem. The text tells us that he went to the Mount of Olives. One of the things that we see in Jesus's life, in fact, I've got Matthew 8, 20 and Luke 9, 58 up there, which just says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that's true of the Lord Jesus. Um, even in around the Sea of Galilee, where, where the base of his ministry was conducted, he, he lived in, in somebody else's own home. He didn't own a home, right? This is what we learn from the scriptures. But one of the things that we see is oftentimes when Jesus would come to Jerusalem, not having a home, he would either travel into Bethany and stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But in this case, it looks like he just camped out on the Mount of Olives, which he did later in his life, during the last week of his life, he actually camped out in the Mount of Olives, we learned from Luke 21. So that might have been what he did. It says he went to the Mount of Olives, probably camped out there. And why did he do that? Why did he not just race back to the Sea of Galilee? Because I think he recognized that there was still a large crowd there. There was going to be opportunity for ministry the next morning, which is why he heads back to the temple that morning. Full day of ministry, opportunity here. We've got this picture of the temple here. This is actually the temple complex. Obviously, it's not in existence today. It's been, it was destroyed in 70 AD. But you can see kind of on the back there, all the columns along those walls. And that's where the rabbis would set up. They would sit near one of those columns, and then people would gather around them to listen to them. This is probably where uh, Jesus went. Again, when, when it says he went to the temple there's a couple of words in Greek for temple. This, this word means the temple compound. So he went into the temple compound. Again, probably sat near one of these columns. That's where he had been teaching during the feast as well. And we see this, that all the people came to him. I love, I love these all-inclusive words. All the people came to him. And the word came is used in the perfect tense. The idea is it's a con continual action in the past from the perspective of the writer. In other words, all the people kept on coming to him. They were continually coming to him. We see from this statement, at least in Jerusalem, Jesus's popularity is still very high. He had lost some disciples up at the Sea of Galilee because of the bread of life discourse, but here his popularity is still high. The problem is they're not in agreement on his identity. They're all in disarray over who this guy actually is. They just think he's pretty cool. He's interesting. They want to get some more time with him. But notice, uh, again, the text is very specific because it, John is telling a story. He's introducing it. Who were coming to him? the people, not the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders, they're off doing something else, and we're going to see what they're off doing here in a second. They, they've got very nefarious things going on as they've probably contrived this situation, and they're bringing it to pass. The people come out. They continue to, to listen to him. 
again, the seated position was your typical position of a rabbi in that day. And the fact that he taught is also in the imperfect tense. They kept on coming and he kept on teaching. And they kept on coming and he kept on teaching. It's kind of the, the, the thing that we get out of the text. And as we've mentioned before, and I think this is so important to, it's a, it's a total sidebar, but I think it's important to repeat and remind ourselves because sometimes this gets confused in the life of Jesus. The primary ministry of Jesus on earth was his teaching ministry. The miracles and the signs are awesome. Don't get me wrong. I love looking at them too. They're fun. They're exciting. You're like, wow, blow my mind, blow me away. You're awesome, Lord. You're great. But his teaching was his primary ministry. And you'll see that emphasis here throughout his life. The miracles, the signs were only designed to validate and verify what he was saying as true that he was a divine messenger. And sometimes we look at the life of Jesus, or at least secular people do, and all they see is the miracles and they ignore the teaching. And and we don't want to do that in the book of John. John wants to use these miracles to persuade you that what Jesus said about himself is true and that if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life, period. But it's the teaching that we want to go back to. And we see it here as well. And so this all kind of just sets the stage for this incredible confrontation. What we're going to see starting uh, in verse 3 is we're going to see a woman who was caught red-handed in sin. No, I didn't eat the chocolate chip cookies as she's got chocolate on her face, right? She's caught red-handed in her sin. And this is where the leaders now show up. Verse 3, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery And when they had set her in the midst, and I'm kind of cutting off uh, the flow there, but I want to talk about this for a second. The fact that they brought her to him, it's interesting. This word here means to lead, to bring, to carry, or remove. The the way we might say it in our day is they escorted her to him, okay? They didn't just say, hey, we caught you, go see Jesus. They were like, no, come on, we're coming. And they kind of escorted her. The idea of of force might be there, uh, the idea of, of seize, because when they say they caught her, it means they apprehended her. They laid hold of her. They seized. It, it was a, it's a hunting term. It came to mean obtaining something with the idea of eager and strenuous exertion. The idea communicated by this word is while she's in the very act of adultery, which is going to be confirmed for us in verse 4, while she's in the very act of adultery, they grabbed her and they escorted her. Now, did they give her time to make herself, to to cover herself before they paraded her into public and threw her into the temple compound in front of Jesus? We don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if they didn't. They didn't seem like the most sensitive of guys. They probably weren't holding the door open for her, so to speak. We don't know. But what's interesting is this is actually what's required to enforce the Jewish law of execution for an adulterer. They had to physically catch somebody in the act. And if they didn't, even if it looked bad, like what's, what's Jimmy coming out of you know, Susie's house for at 4.30 in the morning? That doesn't look very good. That was not enough to convict anybody. They had to connect them in the act. They couldn't even see them lying in bed together. That was not enough to convict them. They had to see them in the act. Apparently, This is a circumstance where these men actually saw this woman in the act and grabbed her and seized her. I know your mind's already going. If you think like me, like I do, if you think like me, doesn't adultery require two people? Does it take two to tango? Last time I 
was explain the birds and the bees. That's what has to happen, right? So the question is, where's the dude? That's right off the bat. Right off the bat, this isn't passing the smell test. Right off the bat, they've got the woman. Where's the dude? Where's the guy, right? He had to be involved if they caught him in the act. Something's off immediately. Now, Jesus is no fool. He sees this, I'm sure, immediately. The text, though, is completely silent on this point. So there's been multiple speculations. Let me just give you a couple. One, the man got away. They were unable to seize him. That's definitely a possibility. They came in the room. There was commotion. He somehow slipped away, got away. They only had the woman. They brought her to Jesus. That's a possibility. The other possibility, a little bit more uh, nefarious, is that it wasn't a genuine inquiry. And so they actually set this woman up in order to entrap Jesus and they let the guy go. Now, the guy might have been one of their own group. We don't know. There's a lot of speculation. We could really get into that type of speculation. But it's interesting to note that he's not there. They don't have a hold of him. They set her in the midst. This was designed to do two things, publicly shame and humiliate her and disrupt Jesus's teaching. They wanted him to have to take a stand on this situation. This is the proverbial difficult scenario that, you know, just to use a a phrase, you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't, right? Kind of deal. Either decision he makes here, it it has the potential to look negative on him, even though he he didn't even cause the situation. So they know what they're doing. They were very cruel in doing this, by the way. The law didn't require public humiliation. The law didn't require bringing uh, adulterers to the feet of a, of a rabbi. The law didn't require any of that. In fact, what we're going to see is if they were really interested in executing justice, they would have taken this woman outside of the city and executed justice. That's what the Mosaic law described, not bring them to Jesus to ask him what they should do. They clearly understood the law to say that they're just trying to put Jesus in a very difficult predicament. And what we're going to see, in fact, we're going to get their motives spelled out to us. We don't have to speculate on their motives. They're only interested in discrediting Jesus. They don't really give a rip about the law. They don't care about righteous judgment. They don't care about any of that. They're using this as a scenario to entrap Jesus so that they can further condemn him. They're just looking for a way. They're looking for Jesus to give them something that they can nail him on. That's what they're looking for. They really care about this woman. They don't really care about executing justice for adultery. They don't really care about putting evil out of the nation, which is what God gives as a reason for executing adulterers in the Mosaic Law, is to remove evil from the nation. They didn't care about any of that. They're like, here's a chance to get Jesus, let's do it. That was their mindset. We see this accusation in the trap that they put Jesus in in verses four through five. Then they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Notice they don't say to him, Jesus. What do they say to him? Teacher. This is an insincere term of respect. They're flattering him. This is like saying, oh, rabbi, rabbi. You know, oh, doctor, doctor. Oh, sir, sir. It's this way of flattering him. They don't don't have any respect for Jesus. This is totally 100% insincere but they're acting like they have a genuine inquiry from the Mosaic law. And they're, and they're purporting themselves to be, hey, we just want God's law to take, you know, that's how they're purporting them and presenting themselves to Jesus here. They don't respect him. They're just using false flattery to try to entice him to step into their trap. The problem is they don't know who they're dealing with. They think they do. They don't know who they're dealing with. And as we're going to see from the law of Moses, 
which they quote here. They're the ones that bring it up. They were actually the ones, since they caught her in the act, they were the ones responsible for addressing the situation, not Jesus, not some rabbi in the temple, not, not even the Sanhedrin. So to bring her to Jesus without the man was already outside the given instructions in Mosaic law. They're already claiming that they're following the law, but they're breaking the law, even in the way that they're going about all of this. Let's look at a couple of things in the law. I think this will help clarify this for us. They say, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Moses did indeed give this instruction via inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We find it in the law, Leviticus. We find it in Deuteronomy. And then we find kind of a, a reference back to it in Ezekiel to show what, what, the, what the common practice was. But kind of walk through this with me. Leviticus 20.10. Notice it says, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So how many people get killed? Two, not just one, right? And that was part of the law. By the way, notice that the method by which they were executed is not mentioned in Leviticus 2010. It just says there to be put to death. Put to death how would be the question. Well, um, that brings us to Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them, how many? Just her, right? No, both out to the gate of that city. And you shall stone her to death with stones or them? Them. Again, you see the problem here. You you see the problem even set up by the way they're setting this up. You shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. See the goal, the end goal for a nation when their civic law was tied with their theology, their religious law is their civic law. It's designed to push evil out of the nation. And so there was justice when religious laws were broken because it was part of their civic law. Again, this was the goal of this execution. It seems to mention in Deuteronomy, you'll you'll see, they they seem to mention, at least in this passage, specifically a betrothed woman meaning she wasn't yet married. But then we go to Ezekiel 16. And notice this. This is a description of judgment as the Israelites executed judgment on adulterers. And this is what he says. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock, there's adultery, or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. The stoning uh, wasn't sure, then they would go back and, and kill them with a sword. So this is how they executed adulterers. So when they said Moses commanded us that such should be sown, it's kind of, they're putting together these passages in understanding it this way. In these passages, we see the following details. Again, as we brought out, both man and woman involved in adultery were were to be put to death by stoning. And again, why? It seems very cruel, but it was God's way of putting evil away from the nation. So they wouldn't be like all the other nations around them, okay? God wanted marriages to succeed. He wanted families to be healthy. And this, obviously, when, when You've got a people that are engaging in adultery. It's anything but that. 
is, is kind of the point. The execution of these laws, though, I don't know if you noticed, it wasn't like when you find them, bring them to a court of law. No, if you've got two or three witnesses that witness the act, you go deal with it. That's your civic responsibility as a citizen of Israel during the days of the Mosaic law when that was in effect. The execution of these laws were civic duties. Jesus legally should not even been brought into this situation. So Jesus knows all this, I believe. Going Right when they show up, he's like, oh my, oh my. <laughs> what are they trying to do? I think he suspects what's going on. Now, what makes this an awkward situation for Jesus, at least awkward in their perspective, but you got to remember, they're playing checkers. Jesus is playing chess, right? And you, you see a good chess player, and what do they typically know? They typically know your moves, two or three moves in advance. That's why they're so frustrating to play. <laughs> if you've ever played a good chess player, you're like, oh, I think I got them now. And they're like, oh, they saw that coming. How did they see that coming? This is how Jesus is doing. So they think they got them. And on a surface level, they do have them. Because let me tell you what, the Jewish nation was currently under Roman rule no one in the Jewish community had legal authority to execute anyone. If Jesus would have said, yep, execute the Mosaic law, let's stone her, he would have gotten in trouble with Rome. Rome would have been after him. We see this in John 18, 31, the very people trying to convince Jesus to bite this trap. This is what they say in John 18, 31. Then Pilate said to them, you take him, he's talking to religious leaders, and judge him according to your law. And they said, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The reason it wasn't lawful for them is because they were under Roman domination. Rome did not allow them to execute this uh, capital punishment for justice. They knew that. So they knew they were setting Jesus up. If he said, yeah, follow the law, he's going to get in trouble with Rome. By the way, just based on that verse, what a bunch of hypocrites. They weren't even executing the Mosaic law according to a T. And yet they're putting Jesus on the spot to do it. They weren't even doing it, but that's typical religious hypocrisy. That's exactly what happens. Very disingenuous of them to expect Jesus to exact the exact T of the law when they weren't doing it themselves. The second awkward situation is that Jesus was claiming to be from God. And so if he encouraged the law of Moses to be ignored or broken, then you could, that would have gotten him in trouble with the Jews. They'd say, this man's not really from God. Look, he told us not to obey the Mosaic law. So you can see the scenario that they think they, oh, they've entrapped Jesus. He's got no way out of this, right? The problem is they just don't know Jesus Christ. That's problematic for a lot of reasons, especially when you're trying to outwit the Savior. You ain't going to outwit him. And they're about to find that out. They think they've got him backed into a corner. They think they've got everything coming against them. They think they've got finally found a way to trap Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, we're going to see their motives exposed. John's going to record this. It's kind of an editorial comment. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I love that response, by the way. It's just classic. It's just, it's awesome. Anyways, we'll, we'll look at that. This is the other thing I love. This they said, right? The word said, imperfect tense. In other words, they continually, they kept on asking him, but what do you say? But what do you say? But what do you say? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? It's, a, it's that kind of deal. What do you say? No, no. What do you say? We're not going to let you off the hook on this. What do you say? Here's your two choices. Which one do you pick? They were just up in his grill. They weren't going to let him off without giving an answer. 
Their entire purpose we see here uh, of bringing this woman in front of Jesus was to test him. Testing means to try or to prove in either a good or bad sense. They were trying to obtain information from Jesus so that they can use it against him. That's what they were trying to do. And so they're testing him in this way. They wanted him to offend one of two sides. And then when he offended one of two sides, then they could work their angle from that side. That was what these leaders thought they were going to do. So they felt like they had put Jesus in a no-win situation. In fact, it's brought out by the next point with a purpose clause in the Greek. This Greek clause, hina, that they might have something of which to accuse them. It's the reason they did this. It's the reason they engaged in this entire scenario. I don't know if they devised it the night before. I don't know if they, they caught this woman in adultery and they on the spot thought, man, I think we can trick Jesus. We can use this to get Jesus. I don't know what happened, but this is their motives behind where they sit today by throwing this woman in front of him, asking him the question, peppering him. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? They're trying to get him to basically hang himself, trip on his own words. So they want to accuse him. They want to openly condemn him in a legal sense. They want to have a legal reason to get rid of him, and they're using this scenario to do it. Again, they were trying to entrap him in order to condemn him. Judgment on the woman for her sin was only a means to get to the condemnation of Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm saying about these guys. They had zero interest in executing the Mosaic law. They couldn't care less about the Mosaic law and actually doing things according to righteous judgment condemnation of Jesus Christ at any cost, even if it requires them to break the law, they're in. That's what they want. They just want to condemn Jesus any way, any means possible. And like I said last week, and I'll say again, as we lead up to the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, they are simply training themselves right now for what they'll do six months from now. Because when we get to the trial of Jesus Christ, I should say trials, plural, it's, if you know the phrase, it's an absolute kangaroo court. Everyone know what kangaroo court is? That's, that's kind of an older phrase. We, we used to, I'll, let me illustrate it. We used to have a kangaroo court when I played minor league baseball. And teammates would write stuff up about you and you would get fined if, if the group thought it was worthy of a fine. So I remember one teammate, I won't mention his name, but he, he uh, never cleaned. He never put his, I mean, when you play minor league baseball, someone washes your uniform for you. You don't have to wash it. He was so lazy, he wouldn't even put his uniform in the basket at the end of the game. So after a couple of weeks, you can imagine what that thing might smell like. One of the things we wrote him up on in Kangaroo Court is like, you stink, bro. Like, you got to wash your clothes, my man, if you want to stay in this locker room. But we wrote that up, and then we would have a day where, where the, the manager would, would determine what the fine was. And I think he got fined $40 for stinking. And that was like a kangaroo court. It was like, it was just kind of a fun non-legal way of just doing things to kind of get back at people. And then guess what he did? Because we nailed him on, on his locker room, locker stinking. He came after us, the next kangaroo court. And so it became this, it wasn't justice at all. It was just getting back at one, one another. That's what we're going to see with Jesus. They weren't concerned about the legal ramifications of anything they were doing. They were just doing it. They were just pushing it forward to get him executed. We're going to see that in, in about six months from this time and date. And as I mentioned, I love Jesus's initial response because it's, he basically ignored them because they didn't have a genuine interest. This wasn't a genuine question. Have you ever had anyone ask you a question and as it's coming out of their mouth, you're like, this is not genuine. They're not really trying to gather information. 
They're just trying to make a statement with their question. They're trying to pin me with a question. It's less than genuine, so he basically ignores them. And what I love about Jesus is the word wrote here is also in perfect tense. He just kept on writing on the ground. And they kept on saying, what do you say? What do you say? And he just kept on writing on the ground. What do you say? What do you say? And he just kept on writing on the ground. So you can see that scenario. I mean, it's coming to a head. There's a confrontation coming, but it's, it hasn't quite reached there yet. There's a lot of speculation and debate on what he actually wrote. And, and rather than get into that, I, I'm just going to say the text doesn't say. I don't know what he wrote. You know, a lot of speculation. In fact, they would tell us in seminary, preach some of the speculations because they preach well. And there are, some, there are some ideas out there that sound really interesting, like he wrote the Ten Commandments, or he, he, wrote, he wrote down that he was writing a verse that condemned them for not being clean witnesses. But the text just doesn't say. It might preach better, but it would probably be terrible Bible interpretation. So we just don't know what he wrote. He wrote something in the dirt, and he kept, he kept his head down writing it as they kept peppering him with, what do you say, what do you say, what do you say? And now Jesus is going to move into checkmate. This is where they think they're playing checkers. He's about, to, he's about to come get their king, so to speak. He's going to expose their motives, verses 7 through 8. And the way he does it is he asks them a question. Or he makes a statement. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So again, we see this word continued. It emphasizes they just kept on being persistent. They weren't going to let Jesus off the hook. They, they wanted him to trap himself. They weren't going to let him off the hook. And then now he raised himself up, right? He's been writing on the ground. And he says, he who is without sin among you. And this is, uh, again, a very strategic statement. We're going to develop this a little bit in terms of what he's saying. But it's a counter to their own stated desire for righteous judgment. They came in as like the, the holy, we're here because of God. We want God's justice done to this woman because she's such a terrible sinner. We're, we were designed by God to enforce this. And what do you say? I mean, this is how they presented themselves. Jesus is now basically going to say, that's a bunch of malarkey. That's not how you really feel. And he's going to do it by making this statement, he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Now, it's really interesting as you watch the life of Jesus, isn't he the master of taking a question and redirecting the whole conversation either with a, another question or another statement. And he's going to do that here. They don't even know what's happening. Jesus, he kind of looks up, and they don't even see him flipping the table on them. They, they think they got him across the table. They don't see that. No, no, he's moving it. He's flipping it back on them at this point. It says he raised himself up. He who is without sin among you. That's always a, kind of a confusing phrase. Some people think, did Jesus mean they had to be absolutely sinless to execute the Mosaic law. And I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Otherwise, no one could execute law. There'd be no judge even in America if you had to be sinless to execute justice, right? So I don't think that's what he's saying at all. But I do think that he's saying that their judgment needed to be perfect to condemn this woman to death. In other words, they needed a truly just case against her if they were going to execute justice. And that was their problem. That's what they didn't have. They, they were not without sin in the way that they brought about this case as evidenced by the fact the man's not there. And then we'll look at some other details as well. So it's really interesting because Jesus, when they came to him, they put Jesus in the place of a judge. And now Jesus has flipped the table. Now he's her defense attorney. And he's saying, you guys don't even have a legitimate legal case. In fact, he's saying this. He's saying, he puts the dilemma back on them. Because if they stoned her, the way that they 
were saying, and they didn't sin, then they wouldn't have brought about this case to begin with, right? If they stoned her, then they were basically saying, we're without sin, that we have a perfect legal case against her. And if they don't stone her, guess what they have to admit? They don't have a perfect legal case. So now he's put them in a dilemma. He's put them in a no-win situation as they stand there. In fact, real quickly, hold your finger there. I'm not going to use all 10 fingers this morning, but go back with me to Deuteronomy 22. And I want to just walk through this uh, really quickly, just so that you can see this. Deuteronomy 22, we're going to start in verse 22. But if you, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 13. Oftentimes you'll have like a title heading in your Bible. At verse 13, it says laws of sexual morality. Okay, so he, in this section, Moses goes over different aspects of the laws involving sexual morality, adultery being one of those things. And in verse 22, we've already read this, but I want to keep you in Deuteronomy, and we're going to stay there because I'm going to come to it in the next slide as well. But Deuteronomy 22, starting in verse 22, notice a couple of things. If a man is found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then both of them shall die. Again, we see the, that both of them are to be put to death. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. Notice where they're to bring them? Out to the gate of the city. Are they to bring them into the temple compound? Are they to bring them into the temple complex and throw them at the foot of the rabbi? No. The people that caught them are to bring them to the gate of the city. And you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. You can see that they, they are not even following the Mosaic law. They don't have a clean legal case because they've already jumbled up the process, okay? And it's going to get worse because since this occasion of adultery seems to have been contrived or set up or they had impure motives for bringing it, what the woman is a guilty but unknowing victim of their scheming, they weren't clean witnesses based on God's standards. In fact, God's standards were two or three witnesses, see the same thing, and they just witnessed it, right? Not that they contrived the, the scheme to get it there. And so by implication, Jesus is saying that they all deserve the death penalty if they're going off the technicalities of the Mosaic law. He had actually flipped the tables on them. They were false witnesses. And guess who was deserving of death on that day? Not her, legally. They were. Because they had engaged in being a false witness against this woman in a contrived way, simply to entrap Jesus. And Jesus just basically said, checkmate, with, with that statement. He just completely flip the tables on them. Now, I told you to keep your, your finger in Deuteronomy. Go back to, to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And I want to show you this. This is, this is the law of witnesses here. And you're going to see that if you engaged in being a false witness in the nation of Israel, the thing that you accused a person of, that you were a false witness against them of, you ended up receiving the penalty that they deserved. That's what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 19, 15. One witness shall not rise against a man, Concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness, 
who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Guess what was just as evil as adultery in God's sight? Being a false witness and bringing a false case against somebody unjustly. The same exact penalty would have applied to them. And Jesus just flips this table. See, the, the, the law of God is, is black and white. There's no gray. There's no, you tried your best. God's law demands perfection and it demands justice on those who don't keep it perfectly. And this is the case here for him. They claim they wanted perfect justice, justice against this woman. And Jesus says, fair. But if there isn't perfect justice, if you guys contrive this in any way, then if you want perfect justice for her, then you want perfect justice for yourself. And they, I think, realize this. This is why I think they're going to walk away from this situation. Because most lawbreakers, by the way, they want mercy for themselves and they want justice for everybody else. In fact, many people get very upset when we talk about grace for somebody that doesn't deserve it. You know, that dirty, rotten sinner, they, they just keep doing this. They just keep doing They just don't deserve it. Yet, you know what? Neither do you. <laughs> That's the problem. Even on our best day, we don't deserve the grace of God. The second you start mixing grace in with the word deserve, something's gone haywire and you're thinking because those two words don't even go together. Grace is always undeserved, unmerited, today and 20 years from now, and 30 years from now, and 40 years from now. Because if it's deserved 40 years from now, then grace was just simply on a layaway plan until you got to where you, a condition was required. And God doesn't work on layaway. Thank God that's out of the system. <laughs> you know, that's out of the system of divine righteousness. That's not how he works. They wanted justice for her. They wanted mercy for themselves. When Jesus basically pointed out through this statement, no, it's justice for her and it's justice for you. Go ahead and stone her. And if you're found a false witness, we're going to stone you. It's kind of implication that's going on behind this statement. He says, basically, throwing upon her, this is exactly how stoning worked in the old days. They would take the offending party down in a rocky area, put her down on a ledge. The first person would try to hit her with a big rock in the head, kind of knock her somewhat unconscious. And then the rest of the group would finish her off with small pellets until, until they died. And this is exactly how stoning worked. And again, Jesus makes a statement. He stoops down and just writes. And I think he's, uh, he doesn't say anymore. We don't have a lot of detail as to what he was writing, what he was thinking. But I think he's praying that the word of God, the, the law of God would prick their conscience and, and just motivate them to not execute this woman. But he put it back on their plate now. Now they have a decision to make. Now they're facing a dilemma but praise God at this point, you can go with me back to John 7 or John 8 if you're not there. Praise God at this point, their consciences were still working. Verse 9a says, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Jesus's wisdom and the way he said this, it had the desired effect on their minds uh, and hearts of the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, the word convicted means to prove that you're in the wrong to shame them. It showed, Jesus's words showed them they were wrong. And you know what? They responded to it. And praise God that they did. See, they knew they, they weren't clean witnesses. They, they understood the scenario that they had built to get to that point. So they knew, they, I don't think they just expected Jesus to call them on the carpet for this issue. I don't think they expected Jesus to be able to get out of this 
trap, but again, checkmate. And one of the things that these religious leaders learned about Jesus over time and later in his life, we see in Matthew twenty two forty six again, just a comical verse. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. It's like they finally learned their lesson. Like this guy is so above where we are. We keep trying to trap him and he just turns the trap on us. And he's getting the cheese and we're getting the slam, you know, we're getting slammed. It's, it's kind of what's going on there. Their consciences were still working six months from now. I don't know where their consciences were. They were gone. They've been training themselves to ignore their conscience. And in six months, they're going to be able to do that. But we see that the aged wisdom, uh, which is great, the oldest people left first. Uh, it made it very culturally difficult for the younger people to stick around. That would have been a culturally difficult thing to go against their co-conspirators, especially when the elders had decided hey, this isn't worth pursuing. So they all seem to leave one by one. They, in effect, by doing this, they dropped the charges against the woman. They let her go free, even though she was guilty of adultery. They had caught her in the very act. They didn't have a legal case that was appropriate according to the Mosaic law. Now, as you can imagine, the attention turns to Jesus and this woman. How's he going to conclude this conversation? Well, verse 9b through 11, it says, Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Left alone is pretty relative here. They're in a a crowd of people. He's been teaching a crowd of people. So there's a lot of people still around. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall, by the way, for this whole scenario to just to watch this unfold? It'd been pretty amazing. What's also amazing is that she stayed there. If I saw people dropping it, I'd be like, I'm out of here. You know, like they're not condemning me, but she stays there. It's almost like she's looking to find that closure with Jesus. And, and, and I think, praise God she did because we get what Jesus addressed her with. He raises himself up. Remember, he had not been looking at the accusers leaving. He'd been writing, right? He'd said what he said. He went back down writing. He may have heard their feet shuffling, may have other clues that they were leaving, but now he actually takes it in with his eyes. He raises his eyes and he says to her, woman, where are those accusers? Has no one condemned you? And so he basically asks these two questions, where her accusers are right now at this moment. The answers are not there. And number two is, has no one condemned you? Has no one produced or pronounced a sentence of judgment. Is there any legal case remaining against you is kind of probably what he might be saying. And she says, no, Lord, no one. And I love this statement. It's very profound for a lot of reasons we're going to look at here in a second. But Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither is a great word. It's continuative. It means an also not. And similarly to the lack of accusers, Jesus also will not pronounce a sentence against her. Technically speaking, it's true from a technical sense. Why is it true? Because Jesus didn't witness the adultery in the act. Jesus also didn't have both of the guilty parties here. So technically, from a Mosaic law standpoint, he couldn't condemn her. That's technically, I think, what he's saying. But I also think he's got something more in mind here because it fits with the stated purpose of the Godhead in John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And we also know that the law's purpose was to condemn. You can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's called the ministry of condemnation. It's called the ministry of death. But it's not like God is up there laughing, ha, 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 I'm going to condemn you. That's not it at all. In fact, the heart behind the law, the giver's 
purpose of the law was to reveal the sinner's need for a savior. We were in a precarious predicament because we're lawbreakers. We deserve the justice of God. God gave the law to clearly delineate that. See, many people mistakenly think that the 10 commandments or the law is given as a standard by which you try to keep in order to get to heaven. That's not the purpose of the law, according to the Bible. It's to show you that God is holy and you are not. So that when you see that you are not, you will reach for something outside of yourself by faith and trust in the solution God has provided for righteousness because you can't get there on your own. The law reveals that to us. It's actually a gracious revelation. It's negative. No one likes to be told you're not good enough. But when it comes to heaven and hell, tell me whatever you need to tell me, Lord. I just want the truth. If I'm not good enough, then I want to trust in the Savior that you sent. And if I have to be good enough, well, then I better get to work. And praise God, it's not the latter. It's you're not good enough. God's got a solution that is good enough. He sent his dearly beloved son to face the penalty and die the death that you deserve to die. He died for it and he paid for it in full. And then God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. And if you trust him, you get the benefit of it. What a deal. I mean, that's, that's grace. That's love. Does anyone deserve that? No. In fact, I talk to people all the time. They're like, if you knew what I did, I don't need to know what you did. did." Because the Bible is very clear. We either take your word and how bad you feel about what you did, or we take God's word and, and the great love by which he's loved you to even provide a payment for the worst of sins that you've ever committed. What a savior. What a God we have. We see that justice required by the law was designed to show us our need for mercy and grace in the person of our substitute. Let me just say this. Jesus did not miscarry justice here. Many people will accuse Jesus. Well, he should have executed her. She she did commit adultery. He should have done that. Jesus didn't miscarry justice. He simply delayed it. And I'll tell you why he delayed it. And Romans 8 is very telling here. Romans 8, 1 tells us, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, you stand in a position before a holy and righteous God and he will never condemn you? Let that sink in for a minute. That is just incredible truth because you have been placed in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 goes on to say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can even bring a charge against you is the question. Who can even get a case on God's docket to reconsider your righteousness? Guess what? No one can, because it's God who declared you righteous. Last I checked, he's the highest authority in the universe. And so if he's declared you righteous on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ, then guess what? You're righteous in his sight, period. And no one can bring any case against you. Romans 8, 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And I highlighted that because the reason that you don't have to be condemned is because Christ was condemned in your place. You see, Jesus tells this woman, neither do I condemn you. One, from a legal mosaic perspective, but I think he knows exactly what he's going to do six months from this date. And he is going to take the condemnation that this woman's adultery deserved. And he was going to pay for that sin. So she didn't have to face the condemnation for what she had just done. And guess what? That's true of every person in this room this morning. Jesus took your sin, the sins that you've committed, He was condemned in your place so that you wouldn't have to be condemned. This is the beautiful nature of this grace and truth moving out. God is not miscarrying justice. He is executing it. The good news of the gospel, he doesn't have to execute it on you. 
That's the good news of the gospel because he executed it on his dear son in your place as your substitute. But what should she do going forward? And thank you for bearing with me this morning. I know I'm a little bit over. Let's want to get through this passage though. Go and sin no more. So he gives her two commands now that he's not condemned her. By the way, did you notice the order there? Religion will flip this order. Religion will say, go and sin no more and I won't condemn you. It's not what he says at all. He says, I do not condemn you. And now on the basis of that, go and sin no more. You see, grace, does she deserve that? No, we could say that much more emphatically. She did it in truth. Go and sin no more though. Go forward in fellowship with me. Don't go on destroying your life through sin. In fact, the first one command there is, is go. It communicates as you now go about your scene. Jesus wants her to live going forward motivated by the fact that she's already not condemned. Not in order to not be condemned, but motivated by the fact that she's not condemned already. Now go and live. And then sin no more. Is a, again, it's a present active imperative. It's negated. It indicates Jesus's desire for an immediate response. The idea is right now, continually stop engaging in this type of sin. Go live a life pleasing to your father is the the idea. In fact, Jesus told the paralytic the same thing in John 5, 14, if you remember. Now, one of the things that's so interesting about this statement is going and sinning no more only affects certain consequences of sin. There are consequences for sin. In fact, there are natural consequences of sin. There's, there's what you sow, you'll reap. And so obviously going and sinning no more, you won't engage in those consequences because you're obviously not sowing to engage negative consequences. But one of the things we can be rest assured of, the ultimate consequence is the death penalty, eternal death, the lake of fire. The ultimate consequence is that. And going and sinning no more is not the solution for the eternal death penalty. That's not the solution, going and sinning no more. It's the fact that you had a savior die on the cross for you in your place and rise again. That's the solution for the ultimate consequence. But what he is telling her here is you're not condemned because I'm going to be condemned for you. But secondly, if you go on in sin, you're still going to suffer consequences. So he wants her to live an abundant life going forward and not just continue to drown in sin. Again, that oftentimes can get confused as we look at that. Next week, and let me, let me just point this out because we've got, the, we've got this great tie-in. If for some reason... Uh, 753 through 811 is in the wrong spot. We've got this great tie-in contextually from 752 to 812, and I just want you to see it and have you think about it. It says, they answered and said to him, 752, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And I want to challenge you this week, if you are up for the challenge, kind of a mission impossible statement. If you're willing to accept it, find the Old Testament verse that that might connect those two together. Let's, let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this section of your word. What a beautiful picture of, of who you are. And I, and I think it, we just scratched the surface so, t- so many times when we look at this in a 50-minute setting. But Lord, you're, you're mind-blowing. You're awesome. We We love you. We pray that even as we walk out of here, our head is held high in boastful confidence, not in ourselves, but in what you accomplished and who you are, the promises that you make based on what you accomplished. So we're so grateful for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.